Well, hello, folks. This is Matthew with the Gio Nation podcast. I am talking to you from a uh, empty dining tent at the Adventures Global Camp at uh, Everest Base Camp. Uh, it is, what is today? Today is the 8th, right? Must be the 8th because uh, tomorrow is the 9th. And tomorrow is a big day. Tomorrow marks the departure, the final departure, hopefully, for my uh, Mount Everest expedition. It's been a busy uh, few weeks, I guess, <laughs> if you consider being busy the antithesis of attempting to be busy. <laughs> It's a, it's a strange life here at base camp when you prepare for Everest because in between excruciating climbs and uh, top-end uh, exertion of, of personal energy uh, are lulls, lulls of the absolute minimum exertion of energy possible. Um, your body... Uh, at altitude is working harder than it is at sea level. It's working harder to produce energy. It's working harder to process oxygen. And that harder to process oxygen uh, <clears throat> process uh, is, is read by the brain to say, hey, I think we need to produce more hemoglobin so that we can process this lesser amount of oxygen uh, and, and uh, help the host, a.k.a. me, <laughs> survive. So uh, we have to basically wait for our bodies to catch up to the altitude. And in doing so, it's a mundane existence. Albeit a mundane existence in one of the most beautiful, natural beauty places in, uh, I've ever been to. Um, but it's still a waiting game. Uh, my daily activity is uh, waiting for the sun to hit my tent because when the sun is down, it's cold. In the negatives, everything freezes. Um, but as soon as that sun hits the tent, I mean like when I say as soon as, I'm talking like within, the, within 30 seconds or maybe less, your tent goes from... Uh, ice to uh, an oven and uh, that indicates it's time to get up it's almost difficult to stay in the tent it gets so hot uh, which is funny because you're basically laying on a glacier no matter if it looks like it's stone that we're on in the pictures I've posted those that stone is, is merely the 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 layer above the glacier that has been melted away. And it is continually melting away. This year has been uh, an interesting year for Everest, I'm, I'm told. Obviously, I have nothing to go on because I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm simply making observations from the first time I've been here. But I'm talking to a lot of people, and uh, Ronnie, the leader of Adventures Global, my expedition company, is uh, is saying that today is a, this year this season is a very strange season. We came here and there wasn't a lot of snow on the ground. Uh, 
the glaciers were melting drastically. He says he said that although it was the beginning of May, it felt like uh, the end of May uh, as far as the weather goes, which is interesting. Uh, I am here on a very unique year. He said due to the fact that there's an aggressive melting and, and, and a lack of snow cover, the Kumbu Icefall has been dangerous, more dangerous uh, in, 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 uh, in the fact that there's a lot of popcorn around. Uh, let me explain popcorn. <sighs> Let's see. Look at a piece of popcorn. Turn it into ice and make it the size of a house. <laughs> and that's the chunks of ice that we have to deal with. These odd-shaped, um, very obtuse shapes that are uh, filled, that, that basically like, like, like uh, pieces of cereal in a cereal bowl filled to the top. This is the Kumbu Icefall. It's just a, a large, large amount of these popcorn-like pieces of, of ice and debris that's been cast down from Everest and uh, Lutsi and uh, the mountains that form the basin uh, where Everest is. You know, when, uh, when you think about Everest, you think of this, this sole mountain, this one peak that extends out and uh, out of the out of the basin, but uh, it's a family affair here. Um, you're 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 not only looking at Everest. To be honest, at base camp you can't even see Everest. It's clouded uh, by I wouldn't say clouded, but it is concealed by peaks all around. Um, base camp <clears throat> is very easily uh, thought of as a cul-de-sac. Whereas, uh, you know, I'm basically surrounded in a horseshoe shape by these, you know, enormous mountains, ice-packed, glacier-capped, and these glaciers from all of these mountains. Kumbu Icefall is a glacier, obviously, but it's, but it's not only fed by Everest, it's fed by all these neighboring mountains. That's why it's kind of like so unique because you know all of these different mountains are shedding their their glaciers and they all combine into the icefall and they all congeal and in congealing they push against each other and pop out pieces of popcorn and as that popcorn and pieces roll down the 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 face of the mountains and cascade down into the valley where we're at right now it becomes very dangerous obviously if you were to have a fast you know, high-speed camera and accelerate in like t- five years' time in, in, in like maybe 30 seconds, you could see, obviously, this, this movement very fast. But um, they say that, you know, it's, it's, it's a very slow-moving glacier, you know. But all you need to do is have the, 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 the movement happen at the wrong time and one of these pieces of popcorn can fall over or sink down into the depths of the glacier because, like I said, it's like a bowl of cereal, dry cereal. There's all these gaps, all these openings in between. And you never know where there might be a column uh, where a piece might just sink down. Boom. And then settle. You know, because everything is settling and moving. And, and it's very interesting. Very beautiful. But also very, very uh, dangerous. 
And uh, anyways, um, I'm not sure where my last podcast was. I remember talking about my hopes and dreams and <laughs> and uh, telling you about all the people I wanted to interview and all the plans I had. Well, I'll tell you what. When you're like me, I'm not a I'm not an Uber climber. I'm not a professional. I I thought I wanted to I I I chose to climb Everest 5 years ago, 5 or 6 years ago, and I made it my mission to do it, and now I'm doing it. Other people <laughs> are much more adept at climbing than me. They're faster, they're stronger, their endurance is higher. And uh, I realized that this is not something that I can play around with. Uh, when I got down, and I'm not sure where I was l last time I made the podcast, but I we have already been up to Camp 3, just before Camp 3, and I'm back down. Um, that happened... Uh, a couple about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and uh, let me tell you, we were carrying gear. The way that the way that you the way that Everest works is you have rotations, where you go up, you drop off gear, and then you come back down. Now going up, you drop off the gear. That's that's one purpose, because what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for the next climb. And sometimes people will actually ascend uh, Everest th three times before summiting. They'll go up to Camp 2, come down. They'll go up to Camp 3, come down. And then they'll go up to 3, 4, 5, uh, three and then 4, and then summit, and then come down. And each time they go up, they carry a little bit more gear. That will be needed for summit push. It won't be needed for the climb that they're doing. It's necessary, necessary to set yourself up. So that when you're doing the summit push, when you're putting all your energy into getting to the top of this mountain, you have uh, gear that is stationed for you and ready for those points that you need it. Well, what our, our team decided to do is a two-push strategy. We were going to go up to Camp 3, touch, touch Camp 3 bring all of our stuff up that we would need to summit, carry it on our backs, uh, and included a separate sleeping bag. I have a sleeping bag here at base camp, and I also have a sleeping bag now stationed at Camp 3, along with my, um, my uh, goose down uh, tops and bottoms. These are your summit top and bottom. They'll keep you warm when it's like negative 30 degrees or 40 degrees, and all of that stuff is up there. And it all was carried up by me uh, and everybody individually carried up their stuff to Camp 3. Um, but I'll tell you what, when I first went through that Kumbu Icefall on our first push, our first rotation, you call it, I was, I was toast. <laughs> I was uh, slow. Um, I'm amidst uh, some really... Um, well-trained guys. They move quick. They move efficiently. They have a little bit more, some of them have more experience than me. Some of them don't. They have, have similar experiences as me as far as mountain climbing, but they're all 
uber athletes, I would say. And uh, they, they would disappear from sight in front of me, leaving me with a Sherpa. And this isn't a negative to them. It's just everybody goes at their pace. Uh, climbing mountain is is somewhat a team sport because we all support each other as far as uh, emotionally, but it's also an individual thing. You're not going to hang behind and wait for me and put yourself in danger or a detriment. You're going to go at your pace. And my pace just happens to be extremely slow. So I made my way through the ice, ice fall with a pack on my back. I was so slow that one of the Sherpas at one point in time pushed me on my back and uh, tried to, he was he was trying to help me. But uh, I kind of snapped at him. I says, no, no, please. If you end up pushing me, then I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to go home. I was, I was really, I was really down in the dumps. Uh, similar to the, the feeling I had in Mushitaga when I was sick and I was trying to do that first, uh, first rotation. But here, uh, I felt like I was not worthy. I didn't think I was, I was, I should be here. And uh, I was getting really down on myself. By the time I got to Camp One, I was so exhausted. The Sherpas had actually taken the pack off my back forcibly, kind of like, give it to me. And we'll take that load. You just got to make it to base, make it to Camp One. And so, slowly, I plotted to bet to Camp One. By the time I got there, I was uh, composing. <laughs> I was composing my my I quit speech in my head to my fellow team members. I was thinking about what to talk to Annie about. I was thinking about what to tell you guys. I was really um, spent and angry at myself. And when I got to camp one, I dropped on my knees and, and my goggles, which are sealed to my face, started to fill with tears. And, uh, I was done. I said, if, if I have to work this hard and, and I'm, I'm this type of climber, then, then there's no way that I deserve to be on this greatest mountain in the world. And, uh, and I collapsed. <sighs> and uh, my teammates were there. They had been there for a while, maybe an hour ahead of me. They had all gone through an excruciating climb themselves. And <laughs> they surrounded me. And James, one of the guys, gave me a big hug, wrapped his arms around me, and uh, kind of took me in their arms. And <sighs> it's amazing what support can do, you know, from your teammates, from the people you care about. And uh, I, I, I shook my head and I said, I can't do this. This isn't for me. This is your guys' moment. I'm, I says, I, I'm taking away from your guys' climb. I'm, I'm diverting Sherpa so that they're helping me. But meanwhile, you guys deserve help too. And I was feeling really, really low. And they just said, Matt, you know, this is, you can do this. 
you know, there's the typical stuff, you know. This is not an easy thing to do. This is a very hard thing to do. Um, Kevin, who has climbed two times before, you know, he, he, he had been trying to make me understand that slow is steady. As long as you're going steady, as long as you're moving at a pace, no matter how slow that pace is, you're going to make it to the top. And, you know, he, he, you know, they, they all had their thing that they said to me that was prophetic, you know, and, and, uh, helped me at that moment. I, I'll tell you what, if, if I didn't have that moment for them to, you know, embrace me and give me some words of wisdom, the Sherpas, I could tell cared, but they couldn't quite understand what I was going through. They're so healthy and they see this so often that I'm sure that they don't so much have so much compassion. It's not their fault. It's just their job, you know, and if I had only had them with me, I might have just been like, you know what, I don't deserve this and turned around. But instead, they grabbed me, they hold me. I went to my tent, took a deep breath, took a look around, which was beautiful. I was in this beautiful area. I was so also so angry because I was working so hard to get through the fall that I didn't t- hardly take any video. I didn't whip the camera out. And here I was thinking that this camera was going to be the, the, you know, my, my Excalibur, my sword, my, my speciality, the thing that's going to set me apart, the thing that I'll be able to show people this Everest climb and what I'm going through and, and how I feel. And I couldn't even think about it. My mind was fixed on getting to Camp 2, and then eventually getting to camp two and quitting. I mean, my, my mind was made up uh, until they, until the guys kind of gave me a big hug. And then, you know, later on, I laid in the tent. James is my tent, tent mate, and we just kind of like talked. Not, not anything too amazing, just, you know, talked about his motivations, my motivations, and helped put things in perspective. Perspective is important here on the mountain. You can't inherit other people's perspectives. You have to build your own. And it has to be solid. I think I was allowed that that moment. But I wouldn't be allowed it very very much. There's no time to have those, those moments. You know, there's not a lot of moments like that that you can have. Um... But I did have another, actually. The next day, I had a choice to rest at Camp 1 or move to Camp 2. Um, and uh, I didn't want to slow anybody down. I seemed to feel pretty good, so I, we went to Camp 2. Made it to Camp 2. Went over some amazing crevasse. Climbed some, you know, beautiful, uh, snowy... I, You know what I, I, I kind of think of it as? Okay... The, the ice fall is where everything gets messy. That's from camp one all the way down to base camp. That's the glacier compressing in on itself, popcorn pieces popping out. It's really kind of congealing and, and crunching up. 
But before that area, you have an ocean in a valley of white. And I, and I say ocean because it really is like an ocean. There are waves. And these waves, uh, the, 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 from the front to the back of the wave, it's, 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 it could be as much as, you know, 200 meters, you know, like long, wide waves. But at the front of these waves, where the, the end of the first wave and the beginning of the next wave, there's either a crevasse or a crevasse and a wall. And I, I think of it like a wave because it's almost like these gin, ginormous, I was going to say ginormous, enormous w- w- waves of ice and snow are breaking. And where they break, you have these openings in the earth and these, and these walls that you have to climb up. Like this, the front wall. Like if you were to freeze a violent uh, ocean wave that's coming in to shore, freeze it. A set of waves, let's say. You'd have the front side, which kind of eases up, or the back side, which kind of eases up, and then the front side that drops down, and then the tumultuous, you know, uh, frothing before the next wave, you know, begins. And so you have these kind of steps as it goes up to Camp 2. And uh, uh, very beautiful. Uh, Also very dangerous. They have lines. that you're clipped into at all times. But if you were to take a false step or if that that piece of snow were to fall beneath you, you would drop. And if there wasn't anybody around, which there's never nobody around in when you're on an expedition like this, but if there maybe was just one person with you and your safety is the only thing keeping you alive, you know, keeping you from falling into the abyss, it would take a long time to get out. It would not be an easy affair. Not only are you tired, but they're tired. And you have to kind of get a pulley system to get you out. There's no real, it's not like you can just grab the side of the crevasse. It's ice. Very interesting. Anyways, we made our way to camp two and we rested a day. And uh, camp two is cold, uh, windy. That night at Camp 2, I, I've never felt that much wind in my life. I thought I thought at many moments during the night that the, the tent was going to uh, fly away. As a matter of fact, you had a really, really good indication that there was wind coming because you could hear it rolling, roaring like a train, like a freight train coming from the top of the mountain. You'd hear it. And, you know, your tent would be very calm at that point in time, but you would hear it coming. You'd know it's coming. (laughs) And then it would hit, and your tent is shaking and rattling and lifting. Uh, We we had a small dining tent as part of our camp on uh, Camp 2, and we were sitting in it during some of these moments, and uh, Kevin looked at us and said, "Let's, let's take the... We had our uh, some of our gear hanging from the uh, top of the tent, and we, he's like, why don't we clip it together on the ground? Because if this tent goes, he's like, I don't want it to take our gear with it, which was, you know, a sign of how bad it was. He's been on Everest twice, you know, and he, he says he's never heard it like that before. Very, very interesting. 
Um, we rested at camp two, two days, and then decided that uh, it was time to test uh, the next set, which was to to move from camp two up to the Lhotse face and then up the Lhotse face to touch camp three. <laughs> camp three is actually on the Lhotse face. There's some of the, like I would say maybe two-thirds or, or halfway up the Lhotse face. The Lhotse face is a drastically, uh, a, a, a drastically um, angled uh, uh, mountainside. There's no kickbacks. There's no hiking up this thing. There's no um, sitting down and taking a rest. There is only a rope. Rope going up, rope going down. I don't, I don't know, you know, when you're standing on it, I don't know what the degree would be. It had to have been 70 degrees at least, maybe 80 at some points. Your ankles and feet are contorted if you were to want to step flat-footed on the upward angle of the Lhotse face. And because at the time it hadn't snowed, hadn't laid down any fresh uh, soft cushion, it was ice. You had your choice. It was ice or rock. And you had crampons. The teeth that you see climbers use on the bottom of their boots are called crampons. And they're very important. They are what are keeping your feet attached to the surface of the Lhotse face. Uh, even before you get to the Lhotse face, there's a wall. You know how I told you that uh, valley kind of was like an ocean of waves made of snow? Well, the wall is that uh, is like the beginning. Like, uh, geez, how would I say it? You ever seen those uh, National Geographic videos where the wall of uh, there's there's like a guy on a boat there's a there's a tour tour guide boat right and they're in the Alaska and then the there's either an ice shelf or a landslide slides down and as soon as it hits the water it it curls up right the wave just kind of curls up and that's it just it runs into the water the water meets land and at that point there's it's basically a mess. The Lhotse face is very similar. At the beginning of the Lhotse face, where this wall meets the flat land, there's a tumultuous area, I would say. Um, crevasse, a lot like the Kumbu Icefall, popcorn pieces, and a wall. And uh, our team was one of the first teams actually up there. Um, to set up with, uh, as, as the people were setting up Camp 3, and they were still trying to figure out, how are we going to get a, everybody up over this thing? How are we going to lay out the path that people can follow to get onto the Lhotse face in order to make their way to Camp 3? This was, this was the, like, even before the Lhotse face, just before, they were trying to figure out how to get this up there. And uh, you had to walk over a ladder, a very deep crevasse, popcorn like uh like ice all over the place. You're stepping on them, hoping that they don't decide to descend deeper into the uh, into the glacier. 
And then you had to climb. Um, you had to jumar yourself up on this rope. This uh, jumar is a tool that climbers use. You can clip your rope into the jumar, and it'll only allows the rope to thread through one way. If it tries to go the other way, it locks. So obviously, we want to go up. So you clip your jumar in, you slide the jumar up. It allows you to slide up the rope, but it won't allow the rope to come back down. So at that point, you can pull yourself up on the jumar and pull yourself up also on the face of the, of the ice and try and get yourself over this edge. And this edge is, is literally like 90 degrees or maybe a little bit less, like literally you're almost floating and you're trying to jumar yourself up while you're carrying, you know, your gear, while you're heavy, while you're tired, and then get onto the Lotsi face. <laughs> and then once you're on the Lotsi face, then you look up. <laughs> and you look up at this rope on this sheer surface that seems like it's going on forever. And uh, reality sets in. It's really incredible. There might be other climbers out there. I mean, there are worse situations. Uh, there's a mountain called Ama de Blom that's got some vertical areas and K2. And, you know, th there are worse. But you're, you're ta you, you, this is me talking, a guy that, that had planned to go to Everest. None of the mountains I've ever been on have been quite like this. And I've never been exposed to something like this. Sherpa that was with me, Tendi, he's like, clip in, let's go. And so I clip my safety, um, and I clip in my Jumar, and I attach my safety to my Jumar, and I start working my way up. I have to tell you, one of the scariest moments of my life, your whole life rests on that rope. If that rope was to snap, you could only lay on that surface of uh, the Lotsi face so long and there would be so many opportunities for you to slide down and all the while you're trying to climb people above you are by no fault of their own kicking rocks off of the face because it was so dry and these rocks come tumbling down and you'll hear just like um, you're playing golf and uh, a ball goes wild and you scream out four on the Lotsi face, it's rock. And uh, almost once every 30 seconds, you're hearing somebody say, rock, rock. And the rock, rock goes down. The, the chant goes from the first person that knocked the rock off or saw the rock, everybody down the line. Now, uh, above me was maybe 10 or 15 people, uh, half of which were Sherpa that were installing the line. We were so early that they were installing the line and laying the path. And uh, luckily, uh, Jason, Kevin, and James, my three partners, were so far ahead of me that they were ahead of the Sherpa laying the line. And uh, they were making some pretty good progress up the Lotsi face to Camp 3. But me, I got stuck behind the... Uh, the uh, the construction crew, and uh, there wasn't a lot of. I was going slow too. I'm, I'm, 
I'm not saying I was trying to press him to go faster. I was extremely slow. And, uh, but, um, there was, there was a lot of waiting, waiting for lines to be set, uh, waiting for people. People were in front of me between the, the, the construction crew and myself. There was also about five climbers and we were all kind of being held up by, uh, by the Sherpas and the Sherpas were getting sort of annoyed. They were getting angry frustrated they're trying to do their job meanwhile there's other people climbing and on their own schedule and uh i was just trying to hang back um one of the ways that you hang back is like that jumar where i said only goes one way you slide it up as far as you can the jumar is connected to a harness on your waist so as soon as you get as far forward as you can it kind of lifts you up at the at the rear on the on the waist and then you'd basically dig your feet in side by side and, according to my Sherpa, lean back. Lean back. Let the Jumar do its job. Let go of both hands and basically stand at a 90-degree at a, uh, angle to the 70-degree angle of the Lhotse face. Basically, you're allowing the Jumar to take the, the most of the weight of your body, and you just have to hang there and wait. And uh, meanwhile, rocks are coming down. The wind, it was windy that day, was cutting through my helmet, through my beanie, into my head. Cold, biting cold. Giving me a headache. It was so cold. And I'm tired, and I'm cold, and it's dangerous. And I don't feel like we're going anywhere. And we had made our way up the Lhotse face quite a distance. But we still had quite a distance to go. And I'm watching my other teammates progress their, their way up to Camp 3. And there was a lot more steep areas to go. There were some areas that looked like they were just completely vertical. Like 90 degrees to the horizon. 90 degrees to the, to the earth. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm watching them, and I'm like, I'm going to not only have to wait for these lines to be set, but I'm going to have to eventually go up and see them. And I don't know how long that's going to take, and I don't know how long I can sit on this ledge with the clothes I chose to wear, which was I, 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 I hadn't worn my really heavyweight, hot, you know, uh, cold-weather gear. I was just kind of, we're going to go up, touch camp three, wait there for a couple of hours, allow our bodies to kind of take in the altitude, turn around and come back. And uh, I'm sitting there just waiting. And then Tendi, my Sherpa, uh, he's behind me, and he says, what do you want to do? <laughs> and I kind, of, I kind of am angry that he even gave me that option. And, and any option, because at that point, my mind was fixed. It was go, go, go. But he said, what do you want to do? And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? I got a choice? He's like, well, what do you want to do? I says, we can turn around. <laughs> it's a really naive, childish attitude. And he says, whatever you want. They're going to be fixing these lines for a while. But we can continue on or you can turn around. I said, now, okay, now in my mind, 
I felt like I was too far away from Camp 3 to actually accomplish the purpose of this rotation. This purpose of this rotation was to touch Camp 3, rest at Camp 3, turn around and come back. And here I was looking at Camp 3 beyond this construction crew thinking, I don't know if I have what it takes to wait here. I don't know if I have what it takes to wait on this face, rocks coming at my head, cold air burning a hole in my skull. Again, I had that feeling. I'm not worthy of this. <laughs> and uh, again, I hadn't even whipped out my camera. It's an emotional moment, something I normally would have captured on camera. But I was in such a state, I looked at Tendi and I says, Let's turn around. Let's go. I want to go down. I want to quit. <laughs> what a word for me to use. So we took our Jumars, switched them to repel devices, uh, which is, you know, you see the guys come down the buildings, you know, with the, with the rope attached to their waist, descend Jumars are for ascending, but uh, repel devices are for descending. And so that's what I did. I descended down to the base of the Lhotse face. I climbed, clambered down the uh, that dangerous middle ground between the, the flat valley and the Lhotse face, got to the ground, and very, very slowly made my way back to camp with my tail between my legs. A couple of times I looked back up, thought to myself, I should have kept going, but I may have just, I may have just put in my walking papers. <laughs> I may have just quit this thing. And I slowly, slowly walked back to camp too. Again, thoughts in my head, the investment of time, investment of energy, the idea of what I was doing, all of it swirled around my head. I got to camp and I was thinking, shit, what am I supposed to do? Am I going to wait for them? What am I going to do when they come in? What am I going to be? I felt like a quitter, you know? And so I was trying to decide what, 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 what do I do? What do I do? after i've i've done this <laughs> i've i've literally you know done the worst possible thing you know quit before i achieved a goal and i thought all was lost so i went and took a nap in my tent i didn't even wanna i don't know i felt weird welcoming them hey congratulations guys you know meanwhile i didn't so i waited in my tent half slept then I finally heard them come to camp, tired, worn, just like I was a couple of hours earlier. And uh, I unzip my tent, come out. Hey, Matt, how's it going? <sighs> what happened? You know, I, I said, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I saw the uh, opportunity to turn around. It didn't look like I was going anywhere. And I took it, and uh, Kevin, I don't know if it was right away, but, you know, 
He said, that's okay. You made it most of the way up, right? And I did. I made it quite a distance up the Lotsi face before I turned around. He says, that's okay. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? I said, I don't know, man. I think I, I think I want to get down to base camp and have a have a, just a have a little bit of time. And so he says, "Okay, but you're not out. We're st- we still want you there." And as a matter of fact, some of the other guys were like, "We don't want to lose you from this team because we are a team of four, and we are, you know, we're all rooting for each other. We're all here to climb Mount Everest, obviously." But we're all here as a team. We're all doing it individually. But we're all here as a group, like a family. I mean, these guys, I've, I've been with, with them at base camp for over a month and a half. I mean, these guys have become, maybe not just at base camp, I've been with these guys for a long time. They've gone from strangers to, to friends to, to a sort of family. And uh, so we spent the night at camp three, camp two. Uh, left our gear there for staging for the final summit push, and then came down. On the way down, I uh, I took the video camera out and took a lot of really nice, beautiful mountain footage. I uh, used the gimbal. I used my GoPros, and uh, for me, that's very cathartic. Felt good. Got down to base camp. <clears throat> Uh, Ronnie was here waiting, and we all descended further to a city called Dingbache. This is part of the process. After your rotation, you wanna you want you to rebuild your body. You, your body is already producing more hemoglobin. It's preparing for elevation. It allows you the chance to go down further, so that you can regain some appetite, so that you can feel a little energized. So you can get more oxygen in your body. And you don't stay there for long, just a few days. So we decided to go to Dingbushe, and uh, which is like a couple of like a thousand meters lower than base camp. And so we did that. We spent time at Dingbushe, and I was able to. Didn't take me long. Didn't take me long to realize that I've made my way to Kathmandu. That I have climbed the Kumbu Icefall. No matter how slow I went, no matter how hard it was, what is this supposed to be, easy? (laughs) We don't do things because they're easy. We do them because they're hard and they're worth it. And I visualized myself standing on top of the world. I saw myself accomplishing the goal. I sacrificed and, and understood the fact that Maybe I'm not going to be the cinematographer that produces the greatest video on earth of a summit of Everest. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose is to do it. The purpose is to accomplish the goal. And so I I I kind of found my spirit. I found the yo. I found the, the fuel I needed. And uh, 
and and I and I understood that this is going to happen. Barring weather or some natural disaster, this is going to happen. I'm not the type of guy that quits. I'm the type of guy that gets emotional sometimes. I'm the type of guy that is afraid, just like anybody. But I'm not the type of guy that quits. Not in le- not when I have good two good legs, two good arms. And and these these acclimat acclimatization climbs, the first rotation that we went, it gave you a taste. It showed you what you're about to do. And you did it. I actually if if the construction crew wasn't in front of me, I would have continued pressing on. And Tendi would have never asked me what I wanted to do. And I would have never had the opportunity to say, turn around. Um, This next time, I'll know. I'll wear more clothes. I'll be wearing my summit gear, which might actually be too hot, to be honest. But but I'll be able to solve problems that I've I've had. And I'll also be carrying a lot less weight. You know, now that everything is staged up there at Camp 2, uh, we're going to press directly to Camp 2 and we're going to bypass Camp 1 and we're not going to have all that weight on our backs. And we're going to go through an area we've already gone through. It's like uh, when you first move to a new house or a new neighborhood and you take that first ride through the neighborhood. It's a little fearful. You're a little bit uh, confused. You're a little bit uh, scared. New area, new people, new things, new th- new places. And the second time you ride through that neighborhood, you know a little bit better. And you can do it with a little bit more confidence. And maybe you're a little bit stronger as a person. Third time, even better. That's how it is with these rotations. You become more comfortable with the path. Now, Obviously, I haven't been all the way to Camp 3, but I've seen it, and I wasn't far from it. And once we bypass Camp 3, it's going to be a new, it'll be the new frontier. We'll have oxygen tanks and masks on our faces and, and uh, be pushing our way to the top of the world. Whew, that's going to be wild. That's going to be crazy. You know, the uh, the reason I'm doing this is because tomorrow I start my summit push. We as a team start our summit push. We, we are going up to the top of the world. I've overcome those demons and I've faced the fears and I'm ready. I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Um, the plan is to, at 4 o'clock in the morning, leave base camp and head up into the Kumbu Icefall with a light pack. Me, I'll have my camera, replacement batteries, and replacement batteries for the replacement batteries. You know me. And we will ascend into the Kumbu Icefall, pass Camp 1, follow the ocean of waves um, as they break upon us and we have to climb over them into uh, Camp 2. Spend the night at Camp 2. Push on from Camp 2 
the next day or rest one day. We have an option. And rise up the Lhotse face until we get to Camp 3. The next day, after having oxygen placed on, we push on from Camp 3 to this southern coom, the Camp 4. Eight, almost 8,000 meters. We'll spend the night at that camp just below the death zone, I think. That part where there's less oxygen than you need to survive. Uh, although we'll have supplementary oxygen, so we won't have that problem. We'll leave that next day. Early, actually no. We'll leave Camp 4 that same day after some rest in the evening with the plan to be on the top of the world in the morning. A long, arduous, vertical trek to the top of the world. Carrying the least amount of stuff that you can carry. Me, GoPro, a couple of batteries, my selfie stick thing, a Jayo flag, an American flag, and a couple of other little paraphernalia. All meant to get me to the top of the world so I can spread them wide and take a picture. Enjoy the moment. Then turn around and descend. With the day's rest calculated in, I should be on top of the world on Friday the 13th. <laughs> kind of a silly date to be there, but it's the way the weather seemed to have worked. You see, there's a jet stream issue. Everest is actually poking into the jet stream. 100 mile an hour winds regularly buffet the top of Everest. But in a strange coincidence of weather, we have a window, a very large window indeed, almost two weeks long, where the jet stream has parted on top of Everest. And where ordinarily you only have maybe a few hours or a day window, a couple of day window where everybody's packed trying to make this window, we have a long, luxurious window where the top of Everest is buffeted with 16-kilometer winds, maybe 30 mi 20 miles an hour, 24 miles an hour. Nothing, nothing too crazy. In fact, in, in summit of Everest weather standards, it's very comfortable. Another weather thing that's been happening the last couple of days is some snow has been dropping up higher at 7,000 and 8,000 meters, which has laid some, hopefully, layers of snow on top of that ice and rock, which uh, we climbed on the Lhotse face before. What, what I'm hoping is that snow acted like glue holding the rocks together, allowing your crampons, the teeth on the bottom of your boots, to grip into that snow instead of just kind of grinding on the top surface of that rock or having to penetrate that blue ice, which is almost as hard as stone, and give us some, some, something to bite into. But I'm not sure. I'll have to find out. I'll find out the day after tomorrow 
when we get into the Camp 3 zone, Camp 2 area, and look upon Mount Everest now, not with eyes waiting, but eyes looking to accomplish. The last rotation was looking, or the last uh, bid for, you know, the last last rotation we did, we were looking up on Everest thinking, okay, we'll be there eventually. But now we're looking up at Everest saying, I'll see you in a couple of days. pretty amazing anyways things have not worked out the way that I intended the interviews of the climbers here it it did not transpire although I did have a couple of interviews staged the guys ended up going up on the mountain one of them actually returned had some heart problems had to had to go he was a very famous uh, climber called Alan Arnett and he was going to do a, a podcast with me, but he ended up having to uh, evacuate. And uh, it just sometimes things don't work out the way you want. But I'm still here. Everest is still there. And the top is waiting for me. It's waiting for all of us. As long as we have the determination and the drive not to quit, it'll be there waiting for us. And uh, I'll be there to meet it. I'm, I'm confident now. I'm confident to accept the pain. I'm confident to accept whatever comes at me. But uh, it's going to happen. Jayo. I should be down uh, back to flat earth around the 17th. Actually, by the 17th, I might actually be back in Kathmandu. We might actually have a chopper, a helicopter that's, that'll take us from base camp once we get down to the bottom, have some celebration with the Sherpa. Um, it's funny, uh, I have this glasses overflowing attitude. I will make it to the top, and that's kind of what motivates me. I tell that to some of my compatriots and my par- teammates, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I only think one step in front of the other. I I have no com- not, not no confidence, but he's like I'm not thinking about the summit. And in, in fact, I I don't want to say I will or will not make it. I only want to think about the first step in front of me. And there's all sorts of different tactics people take, you know. Mine, what motivates me is the image of me on top of the mountain. And uh, when doubt sinks in, sinks in, I get frustrated, which will happen. I'm just going to have to pull that image out, visualize on it for a little while, and then continue on. Uh, yeah, it's a real real learning experience, teaching me not to rely on other people and not to, not to worry about running somebody else's race. It's all about what you can do. And that's uh, important. You have to understand who you are as a person and what you are capable of. And uh, build your life upon that and push yourself upon that basis. And, uh, yeah, add fuel where appropriate. (laughs) I'll be adding a lot of fuel uh, my way up over the next five days. Anyways, uh, look to my Facebook page for updates, Adventures Global. Uh, My expedition company will be posting updates. I told them that it's okay to put the post of uh, 
the success if I do make it to the top, when I do make it to the top, he'll be able to say Matt has has uh, has stood uh, stood on top of the world. So you can look at that. That's uh, go to Facebook and search for Adventures Global. Um, if you uh, want to look at my Facebook, I'll post pictures when I get down. Besides that, uh, it's just a waiting game for you guys. <laughs> I'll post this uh, podcast today. And then uh, shortly thereafter, lay down, have dinner, lay down, and then uh, and then work towards uh, mentally preparing for going up, and then go up, come down, and then uh, you might hear a whole new mat. <laughs> it's amazing how these things can change you. Anyways, my name is Matt, and this is the Jayo World Tour. Primarily, it'll be on the back of a recumbent trike, but at the moment I'm in La- I'm in uh, Las Vegas. At the moment I'm in uh, uh, Nepal, uh, sitting beneath Everest, about to take my dream trip to the top of the world, accomplishing the number one bucket list item that I wrote all those many years ago when I decided to do this world tour. If you're interested in following me, you can go to www.jayo.com, J-A-Y-O-E.com. Many of the updates, if you're looking for uh, like instant updates and current current information uh, that might not be not as produced as it is on the website, is on my Facebook page. Uh, you just go to Facebook and type in Jayo Life, J-A-Y-O-E-L-I-F-E, and subscribe. You can subscribe to my website. You subscribe to this podcast, which I think you've already done if you are listening to this. And, uh, yeah, follow me along. Because uh, after Everest, it's it's bound to get more interesting <laughs> if you think that's possible. Anyways, thanks for listening. I'll see you in about a week. Ciao.